uh, in the early 2000s, Saturday, Saturday Night Live regularly featured a character called Debbie Downer. Okay, I want to remind all of you in the room, you need to smile with your eyes at me because you all look mad and bored. Okay? I need a little bit more. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so Saturday Night Live featured this character called, called Debbie Downer. Uh, Debbie Downer was a woman people felt like they had to invite to parties and social functions, but, but she always ruined the fun. She ruined the fun by interrupting a conversation and starting to talk about feline leukemia, for example. Uh, the, truth of the, the truth is, though, a lot of people think that God is like Debbie Downer, that if we invite God into it, it's the right thing to do, but he's probably going to ruin the fun. Our culture believes this, we believe it, because as followers of Jesus, we have lost the rich tradition of celebration that is part of the whole Bible. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, God's people are regularly called to feast and to celebration. Those Old Testament feasts become the background for Jesus' ministry, uh, in which he shows the true purpose behind those events. So Acts chapter 2 opens with another one of these days of celebration, the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost comes from a Greek word that simply means 50th. Pentecost comes 50 days after the Passover. Uh, For the people of Israel, there is a feast celebrating the deliverance of the law. I think I have a slide that shows this here. There's a feast celebrating the end of their slavery in Egypt. That's the Passover. Then in Pentecost, and there's a word missing there, Pentecost comes 50 days after. It's the day uh, of celebration when God gives his people the law, uh, when God creates his people to be a covenant people. And even that itself, doesn't it ring weird that God's people have a party to remember that they are to obey the law? Right? We try to find ways to like downplay that, but Israel actually celebrated it. The Lord calls his covenant people a people for his own possession, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And, and on this Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was crucified, some 47 days after Jesus rose again, God is about to create a new covenant people in fulfillment of his promises of old, a fulfillment of a promise like Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, which says, then after doing all of those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on servants, on men and women alike, The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, anticipates a day when God's own breath and life and spirit will not just fall upon a certain leader for a certain time. The Old Testament anticipates a time when the Holy Spirit would clothe all of God's people with power permanently. Joel foresaw a day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh the King James Version says, on men and women, on young and old. And now it's it's coming happening. 
in Acts chapter 2. The falling, the coming of the Spirit would show forth in the miraculous and in signs and wonders. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the promise of the Father. Isaiah saw a day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on water like dry, on dry ground. He, he saw a day when God's Spirit would rest on his people forever. Ezekiel saw a day when God's Spirit would blow across the dry bones of Israel and raise up an army. And through Ezekiel, the Lord promised, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Jesus told his disciples at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, he told them to wait, to wait for them to be clothed with power on high, to receive the promise of the Father. And so in Acts chapter 1, we find 120 believers, the apostles, Jesus's mother, Jesus's half-brothers, a hundred others, men, women, young, old, all gathered together, huddled in the upper room where Jesus shared with them a last supper, huddled in this upper room, Acts chapter 1 tells us, praying with one accord, praying with one voice, they are waiting for Jesus to keep his word. They are waiting in this room where Jesus shared with them a Passover meal, what you and I call Maundy Thursday. They are waiting for, for Jesus to radically redefine this Pentecost just as Jesus radically redefined this Passover. And it happens in Luke chapter 2, verse, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now, it's one thing to kind of read those words and try to imagine it, and this is maybe what it looked like, but Luke uses a lot of sound words. So here's what it may have sounded like in that room in Acts chapter 2. That is a recording of people speaking Hittite and Akkadian and Roman and Greek and Aztec and a few more, by the way. As they waited, the Holy Spirit came. As they waited, the Holy Spirit came, and as promised, his arrival, his, not its, his arrival, was accompanied by signs and wonders. It was accompanied by wind and fire, and yes, speaking in tongues. Next week, we're going to zoom in only on the speaking in tongues. 
Uh, This week, I want to look at the fire and the wind. I want to look at the fire and the wind and why Luke is so specific about those things. But first, let's play a little quiz. If you were watching a movie and the following sound was heard, tell me what was about to happen. Okay, who's coming? A shark, Jaws, the shark. Okay, good. What about, what about, bum, 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 Anybody? Darth Vader. Yes, very good. Also, answers also would have been Anakin Skywalker. So good job there. Uh, if you don't like Star Wars, it's just time to find another church. You know what I'm saying? And so, now listen, those sound cues as we're watching that movie, tell us what's about to happen. And that's exactly what's happening with the fire and the wind in Acts chapter 2. God's arrival is often announced by, preceded by, and accompanied with fire and wind. If not earth, wind, and fire, sorry. Do you remember? Not that one, no. No. Fire and wind signal the arrival of God's coming, just like those sounds tell us Jaws and Darth Vader is walking in. When God draws near his people, when he seeks to dwell among us, his arrival is often accompanied with wind and storm and cloud and fire. So let me just kind of give you a quick overview of the Bible. It'll only take about three hours, okay? In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve break their covenant with God and choose their own way, The text in Hebrew, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. But the Hebrew word for sound in Genesis 3 is the same word that we would talk about a storm or or a wind. They don't just hear God like lightly going through, they hear him arrive with force. In Exodus, Moses wanders to the far side of the wilderness and he finds a bush caught fire. And there, Moses hears the Lord say, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Moses stumbles into Mount Sinai, and he finds himself on holy ground. God guides Israel through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. On the first Pentecost, when God gives Israel the law and makes them his people, the same mountain is covered with clouds and smoke and fire. In Exodus 34, God passes in front of Moses with his goodness, and he does so in a cloud. When Elijah flees to the wilderness, God's presence is preceded by, announced by, fire and wind, and actually in that case, an earthquake. Psalm 29 says that God speaks with thunder and lightning. Psalm 68 says that God rides upon the clouds and that he rides across the highest heaven. The New Testament book of Hebrews says simply, our God is a consuming fire. Now here's what's especially interesting. When God takes up residence in sacred space, when God takes up residence in sacred space, place like the tabernacle in the Old Covenant or later the temple, Wind and fire come together to announce that God is going to live in that house now. So when God takes up residence in the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord descends in fire and cloud. And when God took up residence in the Jerusalem temple under Solomon, uh, listen to what First Kings 8 says. When the priests came out of the holy place, 
a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. It was a thick cloud that announced the arrival of God's presence. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there was a flame in front of the Holy of Holies where God dwelt that was always burning. There was always fire on the altar. There was always flame in the presence of the Lord. Listen, when God draws near his people, fire and wind are present to cue us into his nearness. When God takes up residence in his dwelling place, fire and wind say, here I am. So the fire and wind that accompany the arrival of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, they aren't just random signs. It's not like Luke, it's not like they would, and, and here's the reality, the disciples, as this is happening to them, it would not be surprising to see fire and wind, at least not just because it was fire and wind. What would have been surprising to them is what they realized is that God was designating them as his new temple space. God was designating his people, men and women, young and old, uh, as his temple space, as a place where he resides. This is why First Peter can say, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house a place where God dwells. Listen to what Paul writes to his uh, brothers and sisters in Ephesians about a decade or two before Luke puts pen to paper for the book of Acts. He says to this church in Ephesus, Jew and Gentile, young and old, men and women, he says, y'all are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Listen to this last verse. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, God is setting apart his people as temple space. It is the place where his name dwells. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says that our mission is to be witnesses here and kind of nearby and to the ends of the earth. Our mission, hear me on this, is to expand the presence of God to the corners of the earth, to cover the earth with the presence of God like waters cover the sea. So as these first Christians are huddled in this upper room, they are friends with someone who is crucified. They are friends with an outlaw. And as they gather and huddle in this upper room, where just a few weeks ago they had a last meal with their friend and master, something happens as God's own presence and life and breath and spirit fill the room and fill their hearts. As God drew near, his arrival was announced like his arrival is always announced with fire and wind and God's people were set apart and empowered to do the work that God had called them to do. And in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, the text says they were filled with the Spirit. 
As the wind blew and the fire crackled, God the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Jesus, the breath of the Father, came to reside within each one gathered. And listen, you and I weren't in that room. You and I weren't in that room, but the very moment you said yes to Jesus, the very moment you said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God himself, came to reside within you. So Paul says in Ephesians 1, it's in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed it, found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. In the old covenant, God promised to dwell among his people. He took up residence in the tabernacle. He took up residence in the Jerusalem temple, in the midst of his people, in the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, Genesis 1 and 2 is not a science textbook. It's about the erection of temple space. And there in the Garden of Eden, God dwelt with his people. He walked with them in the cool of the day. But at Pentecost, something changed. God chooses not just to abide among his people. He chooses to abide within with people. God does not dwell in temples made of human hands. Instead, he dwells within you and me and within us. He has made us his dwelling place. He has appointed us, his people, his people, to be the place where a world starving for an encounter with his presence. It is a place where our friends and neighbors who have made, been made and created to hunger after God find that hunger sated in the temple of the living God, which is wherever you and I are together. We are individually and corporately temples of the living God. And so I want to look at what each of those things mean just quickly. So the first idea is that we are, when we gather together, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am with them, okay? When we gather together, we aren't having a religious transaction. We aren't checking the box to be good people. Uh, we, we aren't uh, just kind of seeing one another and hanging out and fellowshipping and clubbing it up. We are gathering together to corporately offer one another the presence of the living God. We are a place where as we love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, honor one another, this is the place where we experience the presence of God. Last week we looked at the idea of Jesus' ascension of Jesus moving to a thin place, right? This Celtic idea of thin places. It's not that Jesus like beamed me up Scottied into another place. It's that Jesus stepped behind a curtain. Um, in C.S. Lewis's the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a little girl named Lucy is playing hide and seek with her brothers and sisters. And she hides in a wardrobe, in a closet. And as she moves to the back of the wardrobe, she tumbles out into a wintry wood with a lamppost in the middle of it and a fawn named Mr. Tumnus greeting her. That's a thin place. A thin place is where this world, earth and heaven, kind of the barrier wears thin. And listen to me, when we gather together, we are to be a thin place. When we gather together in homes and restaurants, in this building, we are to be a thin place. The aim is that you and I notice something inexplicable, but something intangible, but something so very real. And that's the presence of God in our midst. 
That's what happened in the early church. The early church grew under remarkable pressure and opposition, not because they elected the right person to be Caesar who would then take care of them. The reason the early church thrived was because they postured themselves in such a way that even their non-Christian friends and neighbors said, surely God dwells with those people. Surely God dwells with those people. A couple of years ago, Steph and I were doing pre-marriage counseling with a couple who did not know Jesus. In fact, they still don't know Jesus. Uh, We did just a couple of sessions with them, and the last time they came, we always tend to do pre-marriage in our house, and the last time they came, they said, we just love being in your house. We just love how at peace we feel here. And let me tell you, the house was a mess. We have a baby. Um, and Steph is a wonderful decorator, but they weren't commenting on her decorating. What, what they were commenting on was the very presence of Jesus in our home as we loved them and cared for them. In contrast to this, I worked at a restaurant in high school, and uh, all of us hated, and this is true, ask any person who works as a waiter or waitress or in the service industry, nobody likes to work on Sundays, because all of the Christians go and they complain about their pastor and they complain about the worship and they complain about their food and they're really mean and really nasty. I mean, like, I, I only worked sparingly, so I never was able to, I worked at Panera, so I was never able to remember how the sandwiches were made. And anybody can tell you, I do not do well. Listen, this is very comfortable for me. I could preach to a thousand people without blinking a sweat. Ask me to put together a sandwich from memory in a short period of time while being watched, and I totally fall apart. Um, and, uh, and so I would just be struggling, and I remember these, I, I could, out of the same sentence where they were talking about their church, they were so nasty to me. Christians are the people that are likely to complain the most and tip the least, right? I did not feel drawn into the presence of God when Christians from around Trumbull County descended on Panera after church. But the aim is that whether it's around my dinner table, I want Jack to live in such a way that he feels like he's being, in the best way possible, raised in the very presence of the Lord. I want people that come into my home that know Jesus or don't to leave that experience feeling like they've been with Jesus. That's what it means for us corporately. I want people that come to our church, whether online, I think God's spirit can, can penetrate cameras, um, or, or, or whether they gather in the space, I want them to walk away saying, I really don't know what that was. But I'll never forget somebody after they came to Regen for the first time like three years ago said, this place just feels like the heart of Jesus. Okay? Julia's really gifted. Our team's really gifted. Everybody does a really good job of making up for how poor at my job I am. But listen, it wasn't because of what we did that day. It was because of the presence of Jesus in our midst, right? And so that translates individually because individually we are also temples of the Holy Spirit. It's, not, it's both a corporate reality and an individual reality. And actually what we need is both. And this idea, I think, has ramifications for both what we do with our bodies and what we do with our mouths, So let me first show you what I mean when it says that we are uh, temples. When when you step across the line of faith, God dwells within you. You receive the measure of the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. 
So you must honor God with your body. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is kind of addressing just rampant sexual immorality within the church in Corinth. And actually, actually in 1 Corinthians 5, he publicly rebukes a guy for sleeping with his stepmom and for the church kind of being fine with it. And so in chapter 6, he's addressing all of these Corinthian Christians that are still going to pagan temples uh, and having sex with temple prostitutes. We don't have to go as Christians in the 21st century uh, to a temple to engage in sexual immorality. 90% of the time, all we have to do is turn on our computer, grab our smartphones, or just frankly watch television, right? And in the midst of like a hypersexualized culture, the fact that Paul would say, lust is not what your body is made for. Um, lust is not what God did this, and lust violates the temple space that your body is. That's why we're called to sexual holiness. Forget purity culture, right? Christians in 2020 love to make fun of purity culture. Do you know what you want to talk about real purity culture? Purity culture comes from the idea that my body is a place where God dwells, and I want to treat it appropriately. Now, everybody in the room that's not uh, struggling with lust, which is like one of you, Um, and one of you watching online, let me see if I can then switch to gluttony for a second, right? What we tend to do, if it's not lust, we're always overindulging in some way, often with food, often with drink. And instead of seeing our bodies as this place where we discipline ourselves, that's what Paul said. Paul says, I discipline my body uh, so that in preaching to others, I may not be disqualified. I just started back to working out at Byler Elite Strength Training, and I say this because this is not an area of victory for me. This is an area of, I mean, I, maybe that surprises you. This is not a pillow under my shirt. Um, uh, but but uh, so I, I've started going to Zach's place, uh, and uh, it's been really good. And by really good, I mean just horrible. And... Um, uh, but as I'm like, you know, wanting to die, right? Um, I, do people ever like going to the gym? I don't think they do. Um, that sounds weird. Although there was a guy in this week who was like, yeah, I like going. I was like, shut up, you don't, is what I was thinking. Um, I judged him in my heart for that. I, 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 um, as, I'm, as I'm doing this, what I'm thinking to myself is I discipline my body, so therefore by preaching to others, I may not be disqualified, Right? And, and with all of these things, the Christian tendency is to retreat so far back from like, and hyper-spiritualizing either sex or food, but the rea- because God has given us these things to enjoy, but we, we approach them wisely and with restraint and with integrity because these are places, my body is not my own. And some of us have this kind of internal belief that comes from Gnosticism that says, God can have my heart, he can have my emotions, he can even have my mind, but he can't have my body, right? And the reality is God's calling us to steward this uh, because this matters. So I said it has ramifications for our our bodies, and and I didn't write this part until this morning because it's just been a level of kind of conviction for me that I've not been able to get to, but another piece is... Um, as, a, as, a, as my body being a place of God's dwelling, a temple space set apart, I want there to be almost a bubble in which when people encounter me, they feel like they're encountering the Lord. And one of the things that violates that temple space really is my language. So uh, Paul, uh, Proverbs says, um, life and death are in the power of the tongue, Right? Ephesians 4 verse 29 says, let no corrupting or unwholesome talk 
come from your mouths, but only that which is good for building up, uh, as fits the occasion, as it may give grace to those who hear. I think the cool thing to do as Christians in 2020 is to throw out a cuss word every once in a while to show off that we're living with Christian freedom. And when we do that, what we're actually doing is making the world more profane, not more holy. It's like if you whisper, it'll mean that this is about you. It's funny you got real quiet, but I want, to, I want the space around me to be made more holy, not more profane. And listen, in this cultural moment of criticism and slander and uh, conspiracy theory sharing um, and sarcasm, by the way, did you know that Greek, sarcasm in Greek literally means to tear flesh, okay? In this moment of sarcasm and criticism and complaining and conspiracy theory sharing, uh, you may not have heard there's an election in November. Um, in this moment, we can use our mouths and our language in such a way as to let unwholesome talk come out, to let death come out. And in that moment, we're not making the space around us more holy, are we? Holy space does not belong to red or blue. Holy space belongs to the Lord. He has purchased us and invited us to make the whole world holy. Because by the way, holy ground is where human life flourishes. Holy ground is where human life was made to flourish. And so sometimes we resist kind of the Lord's kind of restraint on us because we want to exercise our Christian freedom or this, that, or the other. Uh, but, but the reality is God says that we flourish best in the holy space, which is why we want to bring that to others in love and in truth and in grace, but we want to bring that to others. When I was little, when I was little, my grandma uh, drove me to church a lot. Uh, what I remember about her is um, she, uh, her job at the church was there was this little desk in the foyer, and it's where you went to sign up for tapes of the sermon. This was back in the 1900s, so millennials don't know what this is. And um, she signed up for tapes. And so she would take me to church, and in an era before child protection policy training, she would let me kind of go to my Sunday school class on my own and then come back and meet her at her desk. But she always told me, Kyle, we don't run in God's house. We don't roughhouse in God's house. Uh, we don't misbehave in God's house. And, and with all due respect to my grandma, who, who played just such a significant role in shaping me spiritually, God's house isn't this space. On your way home, you'll drive by multiple churches. God does not live there because God dwell, does not dwell in temples made of human hands. And my grandma said, don't run in the sanctuary. This is, this is what we call the sanctuary, but you know where God's sanctuary really is? It's, it's, it's me, it's you. Which is why there's a hymn that says, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Moses found himself confronted by the presence of God. He found himself faced with a bush caught fire, a bush caught fire, but a bush not consumed. Moses found himself on holy ground. My brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you today is that wherever your feet are is holy ground. And in that place, God longs to make himself known to the world around you.
Let me pray and then Steph will lead us in some response time. God, we offer you our bodies today as living sacrifices is what Paul teaches us to pray. So offer God your bodies as a living sacrifice. God, is a, sometimes it feels like a sacrifice to restrain our mouths. feels like a sacrifice to restrain our appetites and, and our longings and our desires. But I pray over our community holiness that comes from your indwelling presence. Thank you, Father, that you would choose to make your name dwell in us, this little church called Regeneration. Uh, filled with broken, hurting people, imperfect people. Thank you that you would choose us to dwell in. Thank you that you would choose me and each one here as a place for your dwelling, a place where your name would be made great. Holy Spirit, we offer ourselves again to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as we move into response time, I just want to kind of keep in front of us why we do this time. And um, we don't want to be foolish builders. We don't want to build our lives on the sand. We want to build our lives on the, ro the rock of who Jesus is. And so that means that when we hear God's word and when God gets our attention, we want to respond. We don't just want to walk away and think, oh, that was a nice thought. Or maybe that kind of, there's a little nudge there, but, you know, I've got more important things to do. I've got groceries to buy and errands to run. And so... Um, we're going to take this time, um, there'll be um, some instrumental music playing for a minute, um, and Kyle and I are going to come around and, and light your candles, you each should have a candle to kind of signify um, the Holy Spirit um, within you, but before we do that, I just, I want to invite you, what is the Father getting your attention with this morning? Um, what area needs repentance? As I was thinking about fire, fire signifies God's presence, but it also signifies holiness and purity. And so um, I want to just encourage us this morning, um, what repentance is God asking us to, to come to this morning? Is it, um, is it our appetite for food, for drink? Is it um, our words? Um, is it our, our bodies, our sexuality, our minds? And so um, we're just going to take a couple minutes and really, um, and I would encourage you even to, to say in your mind to the Father, I repent of there is power in our words. And so when we name things, they lose power over us. Um, and if you're not telling him anything he doesn't already know, it's for our benefit, not for his. But I'd encourage you to name that in your mind and to be specific. And um, I think you'll be um, encouraged and surprised by the power that thing loses over you when you name it before the Father and allow him into that with you and, and allow that repentance to happen. Um, so in just a moment here, Kyle and I will come around with candles. Um, but in the meantime, let's just take a couple minutes and pray together.